All right, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 3 through 10 this morning. And, uh, and uh, as we continue our journey through the book of Ephesians. Now, this, this week and next week are critical to our understanding. It is foundational to the entire book of Ephesians. So it's, it would, it's incumbent upon us to really pay close attention to what it is Paul is communicating to us in and through what is a 202-word run-on sentence. Uh, it is a blessing in, in Old Testament style. It's actually a eulogy. Now, in our culture, we're not, we're not familiar with eulogies for living people, but this is a eulogy for the living God. And so Paul can't help himself. He just breaks out in praise uh, after he's greeted the Ephesians. And so we want to make sure that we pay close attention to what he's saying to us. And there's a lot of different, I mean, we could spend months on this sentence alone and learn an awful lot, but uh, we're going to look at just a few things this morning. So here's the key thing I want you to walk away with, is that God is worthy to be blessed because he has blessed us in Christ in the past, present, and future according to his love, grace, and redemptive will, right? And so as we look at this this morning, what I want you to pay closest attention to is just how relational it is. That's really important because God of the Bible alone is, it's the only, he is the only God that's interested in any sort of real relationship. If you do any study of world religions, if you do a study of other, um, other beliefs and systems, it's not relational. You don't get to relate to him directly or her or, or whatever pantheon of gods it may be. In fact, you want to avoid them at all costs, which is why we see so often the Jews struggle with coming near to God and what that means, right? And so what we want to see is just how truly relational God is in and through Jesus Christ. And so that's what I want us to pay close attention to. But before we do that, let me ask you a question. What would make you want to bless and praise someone for something they've done? We, we don't, that's not really part of our culture. We don't think a lot about being able to bless other people. And we really don't think it, some of us don't even think it's appropriate to try to bless God. How could we bless God? But the song that we sang, Bless the Lord My Soul, you know, that comes from a psalm. And the psalm says that that is something we should do. We should seek to bless the Lord our God. And how do we best do that? Well, we best do that by drawing near to him in and through Christ and Christ alone because of his grace alone. He is blessed by our nearness and our presence. We are blessed by his nearness and his presence. And so it's relational. We're blessed by the relationship. And so what's interesting is to think about what, what would want, make you want to bless and praise someone. And I thought a lot about that this week as I've been studying this. And uh, probably, and, and, you know, along the way, so many people have an impact on who we are and how we're shaped and what our story is. But probably the one that stands out the most in the youngest part of my life was, was an elementary school principal named Mr. Ingram at Fairburn Elementary. Fairburn Elementary is no more, um, and it's become another school entirely. And Mr. Ingram has gone on to retire. But Mr. Ingram uh, noticed that there was something of value and probably, and this is his words, one of the meanest kids he had ever seen in his history. That's not funny. It's just true. Uh, I was. I fought all the time. I was a third grader. And I remember one time he brought me in the office and he said, Mr. Barn, you're going to jail someday. And I said, I don't care. I'll go. I fight there too. 
And he said, but there's no reason for you to do that. There's a better way. There really is. He was the first person that introduced me into that there may be such a thing as anger management uh, instead of just letting it fly. But here's what was really interesting about Mr. Ingram uh, at the time. And, and he had one of, if not the last, uh, uh, full-fledged special education programs in the state, meaning he took the most profoundly disabled children that other schools didn't want to touch or have anything to do with. He had this profound heart and love for those who were limited in their physical and cognitive abilities, and he made sure that they had the best of the best for whatever they needed. So it was the last full-fledged program. And I remember he suspended me for a week one time, not for fighting, which would have made sense, but for running. I ran through that special education department. I didn't encounter anyone. I was just in a hurry. And he suspended me for a week, which I think is a bit excessive, to tell you the truth. Uh, but, but he suspended me, and here's what he said, and he was angry. He said, you could have hurt one of those children. That's how much he loved them. He would not allow them to be risked in any way, shape, or form. And I, I wish I could find Mr. Ingram. I don't know if he's still alive. I should probably look for him. Uh, and, and tell him just how much of a blessing he was to my life because at to four, I have not gone to jail uh, and uh, don't intend to and was radically transformed because of the time he took and loved and cared for me. I knew Mr. Ingram loved me. Um, he could have punished me way more than he did, uh, probably should have in some measure, but was willing to love and bless a child um, and I don't know if he was a Christian, but I can't help but think he had to be for as much as he loved both me and those kids and what he saw. And so I am often moved to want to bless people whom I see loving other people well and, and give praise to those people, especially when I see them loving uh, people at the margins. Who, um, so that, that's particular to me, but what about you? What is it that causes you to want to bless somebody? And if you can't think of anybody you'd want to bless or praise... Uh, that bears the image of God, um, there's something worthy of you questioning. Why, why would you not be aware of anyone uh, worthy of being blessed? And so uh, what we see, though, is Paul putting the ultimate blessing on the person who is most worthy. That is the Lord our God, God our Father, who in Christ has redeemed us, reconciled us so that we could relate to him. We could be in relationship with him. So if you would give your attention to the reading of the first few verses here, this is Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, and this is blessed be the God and Father who predestined us for adoption in Christ. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, the first couple of sentences really serve as an introduction to this blessing. As I said, it's very much in an Old Testament fashion. It's a blessing um, that would have been, like I said, a eulogy for the living. And so here Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now it's important that we understand what's being said here because if we get this wrong, the rest of the sentence doesn't make a lot of sense. 
So what he's saying here, and you got to remember who he's talking to. Um, It would have been a circular letter, so Ephesus would have been one of the places, but a lot of these places were in similar straits. There was a lot of affluence. These places were thriving cities that were able, actually, at one time, Ephesus in particular, was able to rebuild itself. Here's a strange balloon floating down. Thanks, Chad. (coughs) Nothing to see here and nothing to see. Uh, He uh, blessed, uh, so they would have had all sort of material wealth, so not, not dissimilar to us today. Um, they were able to rebuild their city after it had been torn down with their own money and be none the worse for the wear. They had thriving economies of varying kinds, and so they had everything they needed materially. So what I don't want you to hear is that Paul in any way, shape, or form is, is pitting the spiritual against the material, right? So straight away, we want to make sure that we're not, we're not falling off into something called Gnosticism that says the body doesn't matter, material things don't matter. No, what he's trying to get them to understand is that for all the material stuff they have, they still had yet a greater need that was spiritual. He actually gets into this later in the letter when he starts talking about the battle is not flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers. It really is in the spiritual realm, though it plays out materially. So what he's telling them straight away is you've been blessed not with all the stuff you have, but you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, what was most needed. You're, you're being separated from God. You've been blessed with everything needed to be able to enjoy relationship with the creator of this universe. And here's the even better news. It's protected. It's in the heavenly places. It's, it's, it's not that it doesn't matter here, and it's not that it doesn't play out here. We're actually going to get into that when we get into verses 7 and 8. But what he's telling them is that this is sealed for you. This is taken care of. For those of you familiar with Colossians, you should hear an echo of Colossians 3 here, right? Where it says, look to the right hand of the Father where Christ is seated on high, not to the things of the earth, but to where Christ is sitting, where your life is hidden on high. And it will be revealed when he returns in glory. So all this good stuff that the Lord has granted to us that's lavish and it's rich and it's boundless and it's depthless, it is sealed and secure for us in heaven. Now the good news is that that's what's ultimately going to matter when all of this earthly stuff passes away, right? This is, this is this, not the stuff that's going to stay, right? Um, blockbuster video, anyone? Right? I mean, it's interesting when you start thinking about things that we, we think are ubiquitous. I, I wonder if in my lifetime, we'll, we'll, they'll be able to say Starbucks, anyone? Uh, or if that's just going to be ubiquitous until Jesus comes back and finally tears it all down. But, uh, but think about all of the things, for those of you who live for any length of time, that have, that have were such a part of our lives for such a long period of time that are gone. Because the world progresses and moves on and moves on to other things. Laser discs, anybody still do laser discs? I wish there was like one person because I'd hang out with that person all the time because that, ama- that was an amazing season of video. Um, didn't last very long. Um, but there's all kind of things that have just gone away, right? We don't think anything about it. Not everything's gonna stay. And so why would we put our... Hope, why would we, we want to treasure up for ourselves things where moth and rust and thief can steal? 
Wouldn't we be better to store up for ourselves heavenly blessings and relationship with God the Father who in Christ says, I want to be near you, my children. I want you to take joy in all that I am. And so every spiritual blessing, everything we could possibly need to navigate this broken and fallen world is stored up in Christ in the heavenly places and listen how it goes on. Now this, for some of us, once you, you, there's a trigger word in here for you called predestination. And, and sometimes that can cause you to get wrapped around the axle. I, be, we're, look, I'm not gonna solve it this morning. Not even come close. Because it's a mystery. But what I do wanna do is make sure we hear it in the right key in which Paul is using it here. I think we are guilty theologically of a lot of times trying to make that word do more than it was intended to do. And we often forget that God's ways are not our ways. His way of doing things is not our, he's not bound by our simple if-then statements philosophically that we like to try to pin each other to the wall with. He's not bound by our simple math. In fact, most importantly, he's not bound by our brokenness and fallenness. Praise be to God that before the foundation of the world, he said there would be no plan B. There was only and always plan A which is that he would preserve his children. Does that answer every question? No. Can we even get to the answer of some of these questions in this lifetime among, among us, right? Blind leading the blind. No, no. We've got to be careful how we talk about eternity other than what has been revealed. None of us were there, so be careful. Anyway, but hear what he says in the key that it's intended. He says, even... As he chose us in him being in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Let me pause right there because that tells us something. If he chose to make sure that we were holy and blameless before him, what does that mean that we were not? By nature. We were not holy and blameless. And if it required him to choose even before the foundation of the world that that would become a possibility for us, his children, then that means that it's not us who makes that decision. We don't know how to be holy and blameless. Now here's what I want you to start hearing when you read the word holy, because I think we've turned it almost into like a religious epithet, almost a religious curse word, right? Like here's how we, like, oh, Susan, you think you're so holy. I've never said that, by the way. Have I? No, I have said it, actually. Exactly like that. True confession, since we're doing confession of sin and all. So, so we use it almost at, to put someone down. Like I, when my daughter was in high school, she's 23 now, 24, yeah. Like it, it was, and it's been interesting to watch the cultural shift in high school. Um, the worst possible thing you could be in high school in my daughter's era was good. That's the worst possible thing you could be. Because you would be seen as a goody-goody, oh, you think you're holy, you think you're self-righteous, you think you're so much better than everybody else. So you, everybody wanted to be a little bit dirty, right? They wanted to be, you know, you wanted to find at least like a vape pen in the backpack or something. I mean, you gotta have something shadowy and mysterious going on, right? Some Snapchat, you didn't want anybody to I don't know what's going on these days. Um, and so, so but it, it shocked me, why, why? Would it be considered a bad thing to care what God thinks and to be good? 
As long as you knew that it didn't make you better than anybody, and as long as you knew that you couldn't get there by yourself, which is what God is telling us here. But what I want you to start hearing when you hear the term holy is it's a relational term. And I don't think that we make that connection always. For you to be holy means you can come before whom? A holy God. If you are not holy and you were to find yourself before a holy God, what is your fate? Destruction. Because unholiness has to be consumed, right? God cannot be diminished in his purity in any way, shape, or form. It just can't happen. Much like if you stick a napkin into a flame, it must consume it. Otherwise, the napkin would put the flame out. And so God, so loving us, decided that relationally he wanted for us to be able to come boldly before him to receive what we need both in in mercy and grace in a time of trouble. That's just Hebrews chapter 4. Romans 5 says that he so longed for us to be able to stand before him in grace that he sent Christ to die for us and scarcely would any of us die for somebody good, much less somebody like me and like you. And so God said he would make sure that we, his people, would always be able to find our way back to him now, you may say, well, yeah, but I, I want to make it my own way. Well, how did Adam and Eve respond after the fall and God showed up? Which way did they run? They ran away from him. In fact, do remember, he hunted them down. He condescended to find them. And remember, he doesn't curse the two of them. He curses the ground and he curses the seed of the serpent. He curses Cain a bit later as part of the seed of the serpent. But lovingly, he fashions clothing more suitable for them than the fig leaves they had made for themselves. And gave these redemptive words that Eve, the mother of all living, would be preserved through her lineage. And so it is God who comes after us, not to destroy us, And that is such good news. A God of his power, if he came after you every time you sinned, if he hunted you down and punished you for every infraction, who could stand here this morning? None of us. None of us. Because none of us, left to ourselves, are holy and we surely are not blameless. Now, to be holy, again, Remember, that's a relational term. That means we get to be in relationship with the Lord our God, and that's good. To be blameless is also really important. How many of you, if you were to raise your hand, but I'll let you off the hook and not ask you to do that, but how many of you could say, I don't ever struggle with guilt? You couldn't blame me for anything if you tried. How many of us are are spending so much of our energy and time trying to make sure nobody sees who we really are? And make sure that that the people that we really trust and care about, they don't ever really know how, how, how wretched or broken or mistaken we really are. It's funny to me how often people, you can be wrong at the top of your lungs and you will fight my, me, my daughter, we have this in spades, we'll go down swinging. And so God says, I don't want you to have to waste all your energy doing that. Remember what Wamba said, our arms are too short to box with God. He's right. 
And so God says, I want you to be holy, and I want you to be blank. I want you to be free from shame and guilt, and I want you to always be able to come find me your father. And that is the good news of predestination, that he made the decision that we would not perish no matter how hard Satan thrashes about, no matter how much he accuses us of, no matter how much we are actually guilty of. Before the foundation of the world, God the Father said, you will be my children and I will be your father and God. Notice what Paul says. He says, in love, he being God predestined us for adoption as sons. Let me pause there just in case some of you are thinking, well, that leaves out half the room, right? So only guys? No. In this particular case, what that means is, is that you would be adopted as heirs who have access to all that comes with uh, being an heir, a, a firstborn son. In their culture, it was the sons who would receive land and this kind of stuff, right? Which was really jarring when Job, way back in the Old Testament, left land to his daughters. So God is not lopping off half the room. No, what he's saying is, I am making it as if you had access to everything. It is free to you. No matter who you are, it's as if you were the firstborn son. And he adopts us into that. Now, we've got to remember he's talking primarily to Gentiles. Why is that important? Well, they didn't have any access to God other than his grace. That's the only way they could come. They didn't have the law. They didn't have the pedigree. They didn't have the signs of the covenant. Yes, you could convert and become a Jew, but you were always less than. So here, God is saying no. I, before the foundation of the world, knew I would redeem you all. This is the Abrahamic covenant coming true. And so, he says, in love, he predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. That means, again, it's not plan B. It's always been the will of the Father to have as big a family as he could possibly have from every tongue, tribe, and nation, that it would be raucous, it would be a wild crowd. Worship in heaven is going to be so, so, so much sweeter than anything we could come up with here. And it says, to the praise of his glorious grace in which he has blessed us in the beloved. Notice this word grace shows up. Remember from last week, that grace and peace were specific terms. Grace is uh, the specific way in which God blesses people who don't deserve stuff. It's his choice in his love to grant to us what we don't deserve, which is redemption and restoration of relationship to him in Christ and Christ alone. And remember that peace part, which we'll get to here in just a moment, is that we would be restored in all relationships. What a gift that will be to finally taste and see the fullness of God's goodness in the fullness of time. So if you would, listen to Eugene H. Peterson's quote on this. And it just, it's a powerful quote. I love, uh, Eugene went to be with the Lord um, back, I think, in uh, October, November. And this is such a great quote about predestination. And and I I would commend it to you to, to think long and hard about it. He says that God predestines encompasses huge mysteries. The moment we recognize that virtually everything that has to do with God takes place previous to our knowing anything about it. Let me pause there for a second. How many of you were just born with this huge cachet of knowledge that no one had to teach you? I thought you were raising your hand, Start. Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm giving you a hard time. We weren't. We had to learn, did we not? 
Learn what? Based on what? What somebody else taught us, right, wrong, or indifference. And you have to kind of hash through that and figure that out in the world. Now, a lot of us, uh, around about the age of, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, think we know a lot. And it's amazing how much our parents learn in just like three short years from like, you know, 19 to 22. It's like they went to college or something themselves and learned all this really cool stuff. And so, and so we don't come into the world knowing anything except we're hungry and I'm going to cry if I don't get my way. Those are really kind of the only two things we know, right? And so everything that we learn is prior. I don't care what belief system you have. You have to learn it from somewhere. And in what Eugene Peterson is saying is that in God, everything, everything is being done whether you, outside of your knowledge. And that's an important starting place for humility. Listen to what he goes on to say. It becomes obvious that since we are not gods ourselves, we are forever unable to totally comprehend this everything. This has two very salutary effects on us. One, it absolutely demands humility. <laughs> would that we would be humble in what we think we know and, and how we apply it. Um, listen to what he says. We don't know enough to either protest or approve. Let me just say, that's offensive to me. I can protest anything I want to. I can critique anything, right? And, you, and often do, as if I had the right. But what he's saying here is really important. It's not that you can't protest and not that you can't approve, but ultimately you can't come down on either side of whether or not it is in fact eternally true. We gotta wait to see. And so it would be good if we were more careful with the things that we think we know and we were more careful with the things of God, the mysteries. He goes on. And this is the second thing, adoration is spontaneous. We, like Paul, ought to break out in blessing the Lord our God for all that he's done. It dawned on me this morning, um, I was away on a prayer retreat this weekend, and there's a, a funky little coffee shop in downtown Ella J. Uh, I think it's owned by, by hippies who worship crystals and all kind of fun stuff. And so they have this, these weird bookshelves. You may be wondering, why are you hanging out there? Well, I feel like that's where God would go sometimes. And so uh, I read this book on time, scan read it real quick, um, and it was more to the Zen end of the spectrum, but what it sparked in me was thinking about, and I, and I thought about this morning, how much I take for granted in terms of time. Uh, and, and I woke up this morning to no great suffering or struggle. Health-wise, I'm in pretty good shape, even though I currently weigh about 245, which is more than the last time we talked. Uh, and uh, I don't know how that happened. Is mysterious. Um, and so, uh, so I don't have any major health issues. My family's in great. Susan's doing really well. Our, our flowers are blooming. Uh, you know, the grass has been recently cut. Uh, things are, my car runs. Like, everything's going pretty well. Am I thankful for that? Or am I like a petulant child? Just Is that what I expected when I woke up this morning? What it dawned on me is I, in greater humility, need to pause each day at the beginning and the end and bless the Lord, oh, my soul. And even when suffering does come, even that can be used for our sanctification, correct? To draw us which way relationally? Closer to the Lord, our God. So everything, everything in this broken world is used, if rightly perceived and understood, to draw us 
closer to the Lord our God. Listen to what Eugene Peterson says as he goes on. He says, we become aware that we are in the presence of a reality that cannot be used. We can't use God. We try, don't we? We try, but we just can't. We can't he cannot be packaged. We tried that, right? We brand him all the time. Uh, and, and, and really, he just, he, he doesn't seem to behave to the marketing strategy that we've come up with. He tends to spill over the banks of that. He cannot be grasped by any other terms than he grants to us. We can't understand him except what he reveals to us if he's an eternal being, and he is. We open our hands and we receive. And we ought to do that with humility. So, so anytime you approach predestination, approach it with the humility of, this is somehow a doctrine of the love of God, not to say who's out, but to declare of those who had no way in that they would be in. And we are numbered among us. That's why reading Acts chapter nine this morning was so important as our assurance of pardon. Did you notice it was Paul who was called to the Gentiles? What are you? For those of you who don't have Jewish blood, we're Gentiles. We're not here if that event doesn't happen in space and time and history. If Paul doesn't have the scales fall from his eyes, there's no apostle sent to us. But he was chosen, elect for that purpose, and we're here because of him, and praise be to God. So let me ask you this. Are you thankful that God predestined you in love before the foundation of the world to be adopted as his child to be transformed in Christ? Is your redemption still something that you're in awe of? Are you still in awe that God could love somebody like you? I am that he could love somebody like me. And then are you only thankful for things that you can fully understand or explain? Let me prove to you that that's not true. Quick show of hands. How many of you are thankful for the love that somebody else has for you? I don't care who it is. Do you fully understand it? Can you even get your head around it in any way, shape, or form in its totality? Does it some days not even make sense to you? <laughs> it doesn't to me. There's times I say to Susan, I'm like, man, you, you shot low. You, you, I'm 240. I'm like, it ain't getting better. It seems to be getting worse. I try to, anyway, it ain't working. But there's things that we are thankful for that we don't understand. So why is it that we require of God that he open eternity for us and explain it all before we would ever give thanks for him? As if we could comprehend it if he opened it and it wouldn't leave us mad. How gracious he is to reveal to us what he does so as to draw us near. So that's, the, that's how um, God is worthy to be blessed because he has blessed us in, in the past even before we existed, that's one of the great things about being able to do a baptism this morning. It's going to point to that in so many respects. But in the past, he's blessed us. Now, let's talk about how he blesses us in the presence in Christ. Listen to what verses 7 and 8 say. In him, being Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Now, let me pause there. So, what he's telling us is that not only has this thing been done way in the past, it is a current and present reality. You and I get to walk around now in redemption in Christ. We are redeemed at present. We are, even more importantly, and I think this is where we struggle, we are forgiven at present. 
I don't know about you, but sometimes I have a hard time forgiving myself of some of the things I do and have done. It's hard for me to imagine that the Lord would want to use someone as fallen and broken as I. And you may think that's hyperbole. Oh, you don't know the darkness in my soul. Unless you wonder, it's not really as bad as yours probably. And so, so here's the good news. It's not that that was done in the past, right? And we're left in the present to try to figure it out. No, it has immediate implications as applied to us in and through the blood of Jesus Christ, which tells us that he was a historical figure. He came in space and time and died a real death. It was not, it wasn't acting, it wasn't for show, it was genuine. And that space-time reality has an impact on how we live both now, historically, so that we could walk about related to the Lord our God now. There's nothing for us to do to gain his love for us, what we are to actually do is to live it out so that we might come to know how boundless and beautiful and amazing it truly is. How gracious he is to allow us to join his work and see how good he is. And how beautiful it can be when he reconciles and brings things together in the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is a present reality. And even though we can't see the, the end from the beginning, and even though we don't know how it all works, right? How does prayer work, by the way? If you, if you can explain it to me after service, that'd be real helpful. Because I clearly don't know how, I don't know how to make it work like a cosmic candy machine. Because I'm not in control. Some days I wish I was. I think I could run this place pretty well. And then I realized, no. No, I can't. Because I can't see enough. Only God who is omniscient and sovereign and good and knows the end from the beginning is worthy of our blessing and to run and be in charge of sovereignly this universe. But we have been invited in through the person and work of Christ. And notice that it was, it was granted to us. I love this word. It was lavished upon us. And it was lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Now, scholars are split on what this means. Some think it has to do with the wisdom and insight of God, and some think it has to do with the wisdom and insight that we now have. Well, what's true? Both. Because you are indwelt, as we learned in John, by the Holy Spirit, and oh, by the way, you're indwelt by God the Father, and oh, by the way, you're indwelt by Jesus the Son. That's a lot of folks dwelling in you. You have access to all that he is, remember? All the heavenly blessings. So if you need wisdom and insight, it's available to you in the power of the Holy Spirit who leads and guides us. That is his primary function. And he's going to lead and guide us to always glorify Christ. Some of you remember that from our discussion of the Holy Spirit in John. And yes, I get that that discussion of the Holy Spirit in John wasn't quite as fireworks and exciting as we hoped it would be, but it was true to what was said of the Spirit in John. If you don't first understand the greatest gift of the Holy Spirit is to help you exalt Christ, you don't understand any of the rest of how the gifts work. And so this has been lavished upon us, this wisdom and insight, and it also means that God didn't make a mistake. He knows what he's doing. Um, Jared Eubanks has challenged me at times when I have said from up here, y'all deserve better. 
as a pastor, or, or I, I don't know why in the world he picked somebody like me, and he's right. There's, there was wisdom and insight to God's work. I don't understand it. I don't know how it's supposed to play out in full. I hope it ends better than I sometimes wonder how it might end for me. But God didn't make a mistake. God didn't make a mistake in bringing me and Susan together. And I am foolish when I say things like that to her. Like you could have done better. Yeah, in some other alternate universe maybe. But in this one, the one that God created and foreordained, he has brought us together to glorify himself in a unique way. And praise be to God, and he's done the same for so many of you. And he will do the same for so many of you. But that is a present reality. And listen to what Rankin Wilborn says about this. This is from a book called Union with Christ. <clears throat> he says, Union with Christ means the reality of knowing God and living in communion with him. It doesn't begin when you die. Right? It's not just for some future time. It's not for when you get better. And that's really important. You understand? So often I think that we, we don't think life in, in redemption begins until we're better. If that's the case, you'll never come at all. So it's not a future point. Eternal life begins in this life when Christ joins his life to ours. We can have fellowship with God through Christ. We can begin to experience heaven in our lives here and now. You're, you participate in heavenly realities even as you walk around with both feet on the ground. It's that past reality that is coming to the present, right? Your redemption is affecting you now, the question is, are you cultivating it? Are you participating it in such a way that you can grow and see? And if you say, well, I feel like I'm in a desert place, what a great place to be. You know, that's when the roots grow deep and strong is the desert place. Don't forsake it. It's going to be helpful to you when the good times come and you start to forget who you really are. And so what are some of the ways in which you are presently living out your lavish redemption in Christ. What does this look like? And would anybody know that's what you're doing? So there's a past reality that's affected by our union with Christ. There's a present reality in which we are living out that is affected by our union with Christ because of the lavish love of our God. And there is a future reality yet to come that has already been decided. If you would turn back to the text, this is verses 9 and 10. He says, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And so the goal of all of creation, the goal of what God sent Christ to do is to restore all things and to make all things new. Isn't that good news? That's not just good news, that is great news. But it's not until the fullness of time so who knows about the fullness of time? Can somebody, if you, for those of you who know prayer, you probably know the exact date he's coming back, right? We don't know. And, and we also don't know how big he wants the family to get. You should remember from 2 Peter 3, that's why he tarries, correct? It's so the family can get bigger so that we could see more of him in this life before it's revealed in full when he comes at last. And notice what his goal is reconciliation. What does that mean that we're to be at work at in even now? What are we supposed to be doing? Reconciling things. I wish we could get that. I wish that our deepest desire, like when anything starts to come apart, when any relationship begins to fracture, that our first move would be to move toward instead of away from. 
that our, our, our single waking focus would be restoration. Last night, uh, my son took Susan and I to a, a, a restaurant called Seasons 52 over by Perimeter Mall. And again, as I sat at that meal, and, and, and we had the, this great meal, I had the halibut, I recommend it highly. Uh, that was my attempt at eating healthy. For one. Now, all the little desserts that we ate after, it's kind of messed it up, but that's not my fault. Um, and, so, uh, and so here we sit at this meal, and again, I didn't want to take for granted as, as we were leaving what a powerful gift that was. We who at once were not reconciled. And it was interesting, I texted him and I, I told him, I said, hey, thank you for a great meal. And he, and, and he said this back. He said, Ashley and I were talking on the way home and we were saying, we, we need to see you guys more often. Which is a beautiful thing because there was a time when we didn't want to see each other at all. And I didn't do a whole lot to make that better, by the way. In fact, I did a lot to make it worse in the early days. But when I finally submitted and, and gave in to the reconciliation process that the Lord had for us, it's changed, made all the difference in the world. And to have he and my daughter-in-law say they want to spend time with us is a powerful and glorious thing because they, they know what we're about. And to say that they want to be nearer to that is a real gift. And so that, we get to participate in that in this life, but we get to do it knowing that at some point all things are going to be made new. We don't have to fight to make it work. We get to join in because it's already at work. Amen? And so, listen to what Timothy Gombas says about this. He says, we are caught up into the program of God and his giving of himself for the redemption of the world. God sent the Son as the Savior of the world. And as we are in Christ, we are now brought into this purpose. God's passion is for his life-giving presence to spread across the world and for all nations to experience shalom or peace. This means that an essential part of our character is missional. Just as God gave his son for the life of the world, so we must understand ourselves as being given for the life of the world. Though that's a future time when that'll wrap up, we get to give glimpses of it even now. And so, how does the fact that God will unite all things in heaven and earth in Christ affect how you engage the world? Does it allow you to engage it with a confidence that he's a reconciling God? Does it give you a confidence that the words are true and that there can be an impact? That the things that you look at and say, I don't see any possible way, that's exactly the place where God wants to meet you. I don't see how this is going to work out. That's exactly the place where God wants to draw near to you and be in relationship with you and help you in your holiness and your blamelessness to live out your redemption through the blood of Christ so that you will taste and see that he is good. So what are the three things, at least, that we can learn from Ephesians 1, 3 through 10? It teaches us that God is worthy to be blessed because he has blessed us in Christ in the past, having predestined us to be adopted as his children in love, in the present by redeeming and forgiving according to his lavish riches of his grace, and in the future when he will, he will, we will be part of all things being unified in the fullness of time when all things will be made right. 